Welcome to the third season of the For Jesus podcast. I'm your host, Jeffrey Wilcoxon, and one of the lay elders here at Redemption Church Gateway. This season, we're going to be talking about work, careers, taking our faith into the marketplace, and some practical advice. This episode is about the law. In a recent report, the percentage of people who pass the LSAT, the test required to get into law school, is anywhere from 47 to 62%. That is a tough test. According to Brown University, there are 17 major fields of law, which include criminal, business, immigration, and real estate, to name a few. In 2020, there were 1.3 million practicing lawyers in the U.S. Today, we're going to be talking to one practicing lawyer and one retired lawyer. I'm excited today to be talking to Glenn McCormick and Dale Rouget. Thank you both for your time. Thanks for having me. Thank you. All right. A bit of background, Glenn, we'll start with you. Tell us about your family. Uh, tell us a little bit about your work and then how long have you been attending Redemption Church Gateway? So I'm married uh, with children. Uh, the youngest is 24. So um, been at this a while. Um, my wife and I got married in 1984 um, and uh, have uh, we have four children. Uh, the oldest, uh, Grant, would be 32. He passed away eight years ago in an accident. Um, I have a daughter, 30, um, who has my three grandchildren. Uh, and I, I have a son who's 27 and a daughter who's 24, who, again, is my youngest. Wow. Um, so that's the family. Um, as far as um, my uh, career in the law, um, I've, uh, been an attorney since 1990. So, I mean, we, we get bar results and everything and you're sworn in like in November typically. So almost 31 years. Um, my career has been in the public sector. Um, I started off working at the Maricopa County attorney's office as a deputy County attorney. Um, I worked there for eight years and I came over to the United States attorney's office in 1998 I've uh, been working with the, 19, the United States Attorney's Office. Uh, there was a brief two-year hiatus when I wasn't with them, but pretty much all of that time since then where I continue to work to this day. Um, and uh, my practice areas have primarily been criminal. However, as I'm in executive management with the U.S. Attorney's Office, and so I'm really over the entire office. Um, so I do have a civil and administrative um uh, part of my work as well. And finally, um, we've been at, I want to say we've been at Redemption Gateway for three years. I don't really remember our exact date coming on. It's three or four. Mm, thank you. Dale? Sure. Uh, my background in education law, et cetera, is a little more complicated because I'm a little bit older. Although uh, I've been licensed since 1988 in New Mexico and since 1989 in Texas. Um, my career in the law, uh, I'm just going to round it off to 30 years total, uh, was primarily in private practice. Uh, there was a brief stint as an assistant district attorney in an extern program in Bernalillo County, New Mexico, and a brief stint doing criminal law with the firm that I got a job with in El Paso, Texas, where I spent my first five and a half years. But the bulk of my uh, career has been in civil litigation, trial work primarily, business litigation, insurance litigation, personal injury litigation, and some bankruptcy. Hmm. Um, married 29 years, coming on 30, second marriage for both my wife, Melissa, and I. We have two daughters. Older daughter is in Tucson, went to U of A. I 
younger daughter went to ASU. Hence, we moved to Arizona from New Mexico to chase our daughters and now grandbabies, two grandkids. And what else can I tell you about that? We've a Redemption Gateway. We started going here almost immediately when we first bought the house here. We didn't move full time until about two years ago, but we have actually been going here for about three years. The home that we bought here was supposed to be a second home. Long, complicated story. Turns out being our first home. Oh, great. Thank you. Um, so, Glenn, um, at what point did you know you wanted to be in the law? Was it something that was in junior high, high school, where you're in college, and then you, you took a left turn and it's like, I'm going to be a lawyer? Like, what, what was the spark and like kind of the age when you had this kind of hunger or calling? So, uh, I went to the U of A undergrad, uh, business major, finance uh, was my emphasis. Uh, and two of my courses in, in my, my core work in that college was they were uh, business law um, and they were taught by a practicing lawyer who taught using a Socratic method, which is the typical teaching method you find in law schools. And I loved it. I loved those classes. I thought, wow, I wonder, you know, no, I'm not smart enough to be a lawyer. I could never do that. <laughs> and so that's kind of where the thought was birthed. Um, so I, I, I continue to finish my degree Um Eventually, I, I went to work for a bank, um, hated it, and the thought came back to me and uh, took the LSAT, applied to some law schools, got in, and what do you know? I'm a lawyer. Wow. So That's great. Dale, when did, uh, when did it happen for you, that, that fire? Well, I grew up next to a San Bernardino Superior Court judge, Joseph Tiziano, and he invited me to his courtroom when I was a teenager. And that was probably what put the seed in my mind. But fast forward, I went to UCLA undergraduate, got a degree in geoarchaeology. After a kind of assorted turn of events, I ended up in the country western music business for about seven years. And it was actually a pedal steel player in a competing band with us, a regional touring band, that had gone to law school while he was playing full-time in the band. And as I got talking to him, that seed kind of ignited, and I also realized that the country western music band that I was in was not going to go where I had hoped it would go. To Nashville? To Nashville, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. The Mecca? <laughs> yeah. Although we had some good connections. We had a manager who owned a post-production video studio in Nashville, mm. but it was not in the cards for the band. So at age 30, uh, I decided to leave the band, spent a year applying to law school, went to University of New Mexico Law School, because we were based in Albuquerque at the time. And graduated in 1988, took a job in El Paso, Texas that required me to pass and uh, be licensed in both New Mexico and Texas. And then re retired in 2015, July 1st. Wow. So a um, little bit of an inside baseball question. I mean, there are a lot of industries have kind of specific questions where there's a lot of maybe ego or pride. And I'm assuming LSAT, pass it on the first time and your score. Like, is that something that lawyers secretly or, you know, around the, the water cooler will say, Oh, what'd you get on the LSAT? Did you pass it the first time? Is that something common or, or am I reaching or I've watched too much TV? I'll tell you in my experience, what's a lot more common is nobody pays attention to the LSAT scores. They pay attention to how they did in the bar exam. Oh, which okay. when, I, when I took both the Texas and New Mexico exams, you know, six months apart, they were basically a three-day exam. 
there's a part that's called the multi-state. That's one day. And then at that time, when I took it, it was all essay questions on two days of essay for New Mexico and the same for Texas. Wow. So it was more a question of whether you passed the bar on your first mm. go-around and whether your score on the multi-state was high enough that you could wave into other states. Those were the, the big things. What about you, Glenn? Uh, <laughs> similar. Uh, the LSAT, it's not so much passing, it's how what, what percentile you fall into. And, mm. and there's, a, there's a matrix that a lot of law schools look at, it, you know, kind of like your GPA and your LSAT score, and, and you could see what your chances are of getting into various schools, and then there's the intangibles that are on your resume as well that they take into consideration. So it wasn't so much, I mean, I wanted to do as, as good as I could, but the main thing is I wanted to get into law school, which worked. I did. Uh, then I took the bar here in Arizona. Uh, it's the only bar I took. I had to take, we have to take the multi-state. Everybody takes that. Uh, and then you have the essay portion, which is a two day uh, ordeal. Um, mm. And again, your score you know, did you, did you pass? I mean, <laughs> so I can remember at the, the swearing in ceremony, they, they gave like a briefcase to the, the, the young man who had the highest score on the bar. And it was like, woo, you get a briefcase. How long is that going to last you? <laughs> you know, we're all lawyers. Yeah. So it's more like, you know, going through the hazing of getting there. Mm. Um, and so no, there wasn't any water cooler discussions about I mean, occasionally you'd hear somebody said, oh yeah, I got a, I got a 155 on the, on the multi-state. So I waved into all of these states and we're like, woohoo, great. You ever going to practice there? You get to pay the bar dues in all those states. You ever going to practice there? Oh, no. Wow. So yeah, I, my score was high enough that I could have waved into, I think three states, all of them in the East coast, um, like Pennsylvania, DC and one other. And I was like, yeah, I don't, I don't, I'm, I'm not going to pay their bar dues cause I'm never going to work there. So. Yeah. And I'm sure the bar dues are like, what, $25 or something, right? A little more. <laughs> a little more than that. <laughs> a little more? It varies by state, but uh, certainly higher than that in Arizona. <laughs> and Texas and New Mexico also. Yeah. Oh. So um, tell us about some of the some of the cases that you would face. Uh, so both of you in different parts of the law, but um, yeah, we'd just love to know kind of what are some of the cases that you've either have practiced or faced in the past and resolved. Um, yeah, tell us a little bit more. Dale, we'll start with you. Sure. It's interesting. Luke actually asked me this question when we had him over for dinner on the guess who's coming to dinner. Um, probably the one that, that uh, rings loudest in my memory is uh, a lawsuit against Blockbuster Entertainment Corporation on behalf of a group of major video franchisees at about the time that Blockbuster bought major video. And that was uh, a big fight against some big town lawyers from back east and it was something that was protracted over two, three years and ended up settling roughly three days before trial was going to start because the lawyers from back east didn't want to go to trial. Mm. Wow. So that, that was one big one. But um, my last few years are probably some of the most difficult in terms of the legal cases I handled. Uh, a lot of them were catastrophic injury cases. And just dealing with the details of those was difficult one was a huge collision on Interstate uh, 10 between Las Cruces and Lordsburg. Probably about 20 people died in that. It was one of those dust storms that came up in multi-vehicles. Another was a helicopter crash. Others were um, murders of people uh, involved in drug situations where there's questions of insurance coverage and, or no. Wow. And th those are difficult. Uh, a lot of run-of-the-mill cases early on in my career were... Uh, 
relatively small uh, Chapter 11 business bankruptcies that were trying to figure out a way to stay afloat, maybe sell. Uh, a lot of small injury cases that kind of cut your teeth on. It's kind of the bulk of it. Oh, thank you. Glenn? Uh, so um, my work has been entirely in, in felony prosecutions. Um, a lot of places they'll start the new prosecutors off in misdemeanors. That wasn't the way it worked at Maricopa County. Um, so um, uh, after getting out of the, the general trial division um, where you're doing typical aggravated assaults, which are pretty serious. Somebody's got shot or stabbed mm. um, and burglaries and auto theft and the, the general kind of stuff. I moved into more violent crime sections. I was in the gang and repeat offender unit. I was in the homicide unit. I was supervisor of the gang unit. Um, so my experience there was primarily violent crime. Um, and a lot of lawyers have what they'll call, if they're trial lawyers, that, you know, their career case. I really think uh, that my career trial was, was uh, at Maricopa County. It was a, about a six-week murder trial, double murder um, case, um, capital case um, here. In fact, there was a book written about it um, by a guy who does true crime books. But uh, that was probably the, the biggest one. Uh, but uh, I did several homicide trials. I've done like 80 jury trials. Um, and then I moved on to the U S attorney's office. First three years was primarily in violent crime. Um, and those cases were primarily in what we call Indian country, Indian country. That's a term of art in the federal system. And so those are crimes that occur on the reservations. There's 22 of them in the state of Arizona. Mm. And there's a very high volume of violent crime on, on these reservations and, uh, handled those. Uh, then I moved into the drug unit. When I say drug unit, it's the federal cases. You don't do possession. These are, we're going after the cartels. These are, we're doing wiretaps. These are wow. large scale mm. drug trafficking organizations, extraditing people from Mexico, uh, doing, you know, trials involving, you know, electronic surveillance and things like that. Um, and uh, that was kind of the bulk of my time. And then I moved into executive management and I've, I've really been a manager at least half of my career, including the time at the county and you know, approximately 14, 15 years at the U.S. Attorney's Office as well. Wow. Um, so what are challenges that are that face most people that are in law uh, or lawyers that most people don't realize? Well, I'll tell you, one of them from New Mexico is uh, addiction. Self-reported attorneys in New Mexico are basically one in four that they have an alcohol problem. Mm. So that was surprisingly high for me. Uh, to, to hear about that, to know about it. But beyond that, there's a lot of, of drug problems. Uh, you name it. And I'm, I'm assuming that's due to just the amount of stress that you're under I, I or think the long that's, hours. I think that's a part of it. Uh, the lifestyle is part of it also. Uh, it, it's, it's just a danger of being in the profession. Mm. Glenn. So my experience isn't, is a little different. I think that because of the kind of work that I've been in, uh, the, the people are, they're less likely to be involved with drugs and alcohol. And the, it's not that they're, they're better people. Uh, it's that we're watched a lot more closely. We're drug tested. Mm. Um, the people you're around are watching you all of the time, you know, and you know, the things that, that I do can affect my entire office. Um, and the credibility of my office. So there's, there's a lot of accountability, if mm. you will. 
that's not to say that people don't have problems in what I do and that I haven't seen people have problems. It's just not nearly as high as, um, as you might see out in, uh, in private practice. Um, so that's, that's not been my experience. I think uh, something that maybe people know, maybe they don't know, um, you know, people think, oh, lawyers are so smart. Well, that's, uh, I think my counterpart were to agree that that's not always the case. <laughs> some of them, <laughs> some of them maybe are smart, but they're not very wise. But, mm. um, but the thing that you do find is that it does, it is a collection of type A driven people who seek excellence. It's highly competitive. It's lead, follow, get out of the way. They will run you over, not to harm you, but because they're going toward the goal. It's kind of like a dog. You throw the ball and it runs over the kid trying to get to it, right? So um, very competitive, high energy driven. And that's, I think, leads to, you know, the, the problems of uh, where, you, where you do find alcoholism and drug, drug addiction is people look for some sort of remedy to the stress they're under, Um so that, that's what I would say is, you know, it's, it's a highly competitive field. Mm. Uh, so how do you see kind of your role um, and kind of like God's attributes around justice or fairness or, or just power? Like how do you see kind of God's attributes um, kind of lived out in, in a role as a lawyer? Because you're, you're kind of def- helping decide the fate of people who've made bad decisions um, there's a sense of, of discernment, but also justice and, and, but also sometimes mercy. Like, how do you, how do you see that? Do you, I mean, do you think about that relationship between who God is as merciful, but yet righteous and holy? Um, but as, as a, as a lawyer or practicing law, like how, how do you see that relationship or kind of played out? Well, I would say initially, I mean, justice is a, is a concept we get from God. Mm. Um, and so, and if you look at the, the genesis of the law, um, back in, you know, ancient civilizations and through now, it was essentially the, uh, legislation of morality, if you will. Mm. Uh, so, so God's hand is in it. Um, and we lawyers are imperfect, um, dispensers of this justice. (laughs) Um, but, but that's the foundation of it. And if you look at our constitution and, and the, the, um, the, the reasons for uh, what is contained in our constitution and the amendments, it's, it's, it's largely about fairness and justice. Mm. Uh, and, and so th- that is kind of a, an underlying um, thread, I guess you would say, that's woven through everything we do. And that's especially true with my work um, I mean, you, this, this isn't just me saying this because I've been a prosecutor for 30, 31 years, but we're held to a higher standard. Um, the, the ethics rules were, we're held to a higher standard because we do have huge power. Um, it's not that difficult to, uh, present a case to a grand jury and get an indictment. Mm. The standard is probable cause. Probable cause is not even 50%. It's a very low standard. Wow. Right. So, so we have huge power, but you know, our goal is not to just get somebody indicted. It's, it's to seek justice. And, uh, you know, so if, if we don't believe that the the evidence is there to prove beyond a reasonable doubt, you know, we're not going to take it to the grand jury. Mm. Um, we're not out there just to get a probable cause finding. 
uh, we're out there to seek justice. So that is interwoven in everything that we do. It's ground into our brains. It's We're trained on it annually. Uh, they hit us with training over and over. Sometimes it's the same thing year after year. Um, so it really is very much woven into the work that I do. Mm. Yeah, I, I would add a couple of things to that. One is the biblical notion of justice talks about impartiality over and over and over again. You see that throughout scripture, God's justice is impartial. Mm. And ideally that's the way it is in civil or criminal law as well, that it's impartial. But that is gets to be a little bit leaky. And what we see is judges tending to be partial, sometimes juries. Uh, and Attorneys aren't supposed to be impartial. Attorneys are supposed to be advocates for their clients. So they, they basically pick the evidence, form the story that they think most effectively represents their client. And of course, you're not going to make up things, and you shouldn't, and it's, that's part of the ethics that uh, Glenn talked about. But you do see that. And it's really kind of a shame to see that. So there, there is a perversion of justice within our judicial system. Uh, I'm not going to identify anybody or any, any group, but it does happen. And that gets to be disenchanting. And I, I think for me in particular in the civil trial work that I did, there was always a wariness of if there is some kind of uh, behind-the-scenes attempt to bring about injustice for the sake of victory in a case, how can we expose that? How can we bring that to light? And that was something that was was huge for me in my practice was to do that. The other thing that just changing gears completely is I looked at my civil practice as, number one, being a service, the providing of legal services to people that need them and can't necessarily afford them and certainly don't know what the judicial system is all about. Some, I can't remember who said this, but somebody once said, life is a system of rules and only lawyers know the rules. <laughs> There's some truth to that. Mm. So when I would get cases uh, and I would, for, for example, uh, one way that cases would come to me would be that I would be uh, an attorney that, for example, if you got sued, under your homeowner's insurance for an accident that happened at your home, your homeowner's insurance would hire me, pay my bill to be your attorney to defend you in a lawsuit that your neighbor or your acquaintance filed against you because they got injured on your property. So in that kind of a situation, whether it's an auto accident or a homeowner's accident, you know, a shooting accident, what have you, the people come to you and they're petrified. The, you know, the first questions are generally, am I going to lose my home? Mm. Or am I going to get my paycheck garnished? Am I going to lose everything that I've been saving for my family, uh, for retirement, for education? So you have to walk people through that. And I found that that is, it's a huge service to be able to, to spend the time with them necessary to give them the confidence that you know the system, that you are there to fight for them and that you're going to do everything within your power to make sure that justice prevails. Mm. And in, in the process, you give them a lot of legal advice ab about whether their house could be taken in the event of an adverse judgment or whether their paycheck could be garnished, all kinds of those fears. But it's the same kind of fears over and over again that you run across. So for me, it, I looked at it as providing a service to people that really needed it. And sometimes I would be on the other side. Sometimes I'd be filing the lawsuit because of an injustice done to somebody. 
whether it was through injury, whether it was through denied insurance, whether it was a medical issue, what have you. Um, so I think that's where private practice might differ in a sense from a public practice is that you do have individual clients and you're providing a legal service to them that they are totally lost as they wallow into the, the, the legal world. Yeah, I, I would say that that is an important distinction is that at least for a public prosecutor, they don't have a client. Because um, so you represent you, the, you either know, the state or, or the federal government. But, but yeah, but, but they're really not a, a client. Your, your duty is to justice. Your duty is mm. to the Constitution and to your oath to uphold the laws and con- the Constitution and laws of the, of the land. Uh, so even though there, there might be a victim in the case, they're not your client. You don't represent that person. Um, so it is different in that respect. And uh, interesting story. I have a good friend who's a longtime practicing lawyer in the civil world. And, um, you know, people, a lot of people uh, will tend to um, have a bad opinion of criminal defense attorneys, and they shouldn't. Um, you know, they have a bad, bad opinion of them until they get in trouble or somebody they love gets in trouble because they're out there to make sure that the government doesn't overstep and to mm. protect the client. And yeah, they, they, they zealously advocate for their client and perhaps their standards are a little different from the prosecutor, but they're very important. But this, this friend pointed out to me, he said, you know, uh, when we stand before God, Jesus is our defense attorney, Satan's the prosecutor. So always remember that. <laughs> wow. I'm, I'm assuming you guys have probably lost some cases where justice was not served. Um, how do you, how do you handle that? Or how did you handle it? Was it difficult? That's a tough question because I, I, I'm thinking back on cases where I was uh, disappointed and there certainly are disappointments they're, they're typically not necessarily case dispositive. They're little things that happen. Litigation is a long process, and I'm sure it's true in, in criminal cases as well as civil. But civil cases, at least in New Mexico and Texas, it could take you years to get to trial from the time a lawsuit is filed. And one of the big strategies by some attorneys is to delay, delay, delay everything. So there are a lot of little battles along the way to get to the ultimate battle, if you get to the ultimate battle. But another thing that you'll hear about civil cases is that roughly nine out of 10 settle without going to trial. And that I found to be pretty much true throughout my career. So the disappointments tend to be more piecemeal. So when you lose a battle, you say, okay, I lost the battle, but I haven't lost the war yet. And kind of wrapping up this question is I don't want to go on too long, but I had great faith in the jury system. Mm. And I can tell you that I cannot think of any time that I was ever disappointed by the result of a jury verdict. Wow. I think they always nailed it. Wow. That's awesome. Whether it was great to hear. Not saying that that it was in my favor every time, because sometimes you get split verdicts and part of it be in your favor and part not. But, I just found that there was a, through my experience, might be unique, maybe not, but I had great faith in the jury system. Mm. And I would prefer to try a case in front of a jury than to a, a judge sitting on the bench any day. Yeah. Glenn, what about you when something felt like justice wasn't served? 
So one of the things you have to learn to do as a lawyer is compartmentalize things. Um, and so, I mean, you, pretty much you're not making an argument in front of a judge unless you believe that it's just and right. Um, and uh, anybody who tells you they win every argument in front of a judge, you might want to check their credibility. <laughs> Judges don't always rule in your favor. Amen. And sometimes we miss things. You know, sometimes we are wrong. Um, and so uh, I have been blessed with uh, working in this state, um, working before the Superior Court um, of Maricopa County uh, and before our federal bench. Uh, we have great judges in this state. Uh, you know, I, I have different opinions about different judges, um, but, but, but I, I got to say we, we have great judges in this state, in my opinion. Um, uh, I also do trust the jury system. I trust it very much. I do not agree with all decisions that juries have made in cases that I have tried before them. And I have had at least one case I know where a, a juror had a bad reason for something they did. It ended up in a hung jury. The rest of the jurors were, jurors were furious with this person. Um, but um, so, you know, we're, we're talking to individuals who are, you know, a random selection from the community and you're going to get everything. You're going to get every kind of person on a jury. And uh, hard as we try during our voir dire process to weed out ones that maybe can't be fair and impartial, you're going to miss some things. Mm. And so stuff happens. Um, so you do your best. And, uh, you, you, you know, from, from my experience, you know, caseloads are so high, you don't have time to worry about, you know, you do the best job you can, you see where, you know, oh, I could have done this different or that better. You learn from your mistakes and from bad results. Um, but you got it, you know, you don't have time to worry about it. You can't moan about it and complain about it and, you know, <laughs> sulk. You got too many other cases to do and you move on, you get to the next one and you do better. Mm. So, um, and just at one point, sure. or something else is a little bit different. People may not realize this, and, and Glenn can clarify whether this is true here, but it was certainly true in New Mexico in the federal and state court systems. In a criminal case, it had to be a unanimous verdict. In a civil case, if it was a 12-person jury, you only needed 10 people to agree. Mm. Or if it was a six-person jury, you only needed five people to agree. So you could get a result you, you, less frequent that you'd have a hung jury because of a holdout. You had to have probably three holdouts in a 12-person jury to get a hung jury. Wow. Yeah, you need unanimous verdicts in a criminal case, and that's what you want. Because if one person is not convinced, you know, then you know, that's the way you want it. Mm. I mean, you want, you want unanimity in criminal cases just because the power of the government is coming down on this person, affecting their, their life and their liberty. Um, we got to get it right. So the, the, all... all uh, Tie bases all go to the runner um, or the <laughs> defendant in this case. So, proven until uh, innocent until proven guilty. Absolutely, yeah. beyond a reasonable doubt. Yeah. What is your favorite part of, of practicing law or being in in law? What's the part that like just gets you excited? Uh, I would say personally. I mean, I've I've loved trial work, which I haven't done a trial in several years now. Well, since twenty nineteen was my last trial, but. Um, personally, my favorite part of the trial is the closing argument. Really? Uh, I just bringing it all together. Mm. And, and, uh, from our perspective, uh, 
you take the law and you take the facts and you, you lay it before the jury and you tell them, now you've heard through all of these witnesses what all this is and you've heard from the judge who's read the law to you. The, the judge literally reads instructions to the jury which lays out the law. And this is how this works together. And this is why you can convict this person. This is why you can find this person guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. And just that process of engaging with them, for me, there's nothing like it in the practice. Yeah. I think we're two peas in a pod when it comes to that. <laughs> I mean, I, number one, I just generally enjoyed the intellectual challenge. But number two, I mean, everybody who does trial work, they basically want to go to trial. They, they sort I don't want to say this too glibly, but they live to go to trial. And that is the result, the grand show, so to speak, <laughs> that culminates from months of work leading up or sometimes years of work leading up to that. And I totally agree with Glenn. Closing argument was the absolute best. And I don't know if he experienced this, but I certainly did. Every time I gave a closing argument and the case was given to the jury, I had this huge adrenaline drop, which I just crashed completely after being up on adrenaline for a week, two weeks, whatever it was, you know, sometimes just a few days, but sometimes a couple of weeks mm. and this huge crash. <laughs> and that tells you how excited you were about doing what you were doing. Oh, yeah. Well, thankfully, my my only experience in the courtroom has been watching it on TV. And you always see the closing argument as this mix of, of um, logic, but then storytelling and some facts and some personality. Um, like when you are preparing your closing arguments, I mean, were you thinking about a story or a narrative? Or are you thinking about trying to make it as simple and logical as possible? Like what, what were some of the elements that were that, that helped to inform or shape uh, when you were preparing that closing argument? Well, I, I would say that common sense is probably the number one thing that you look to use as a tool. You don't want to try to blow smoke by a jury because it's not going to work. <laughs> you have to rely on common sense interpretation of the evidence that's put before them. But you do want to remind them of the evidence. You do want to remind them of key pieces of evidence and why they're important. And you do want to weave a story. You have to be a storyteller. It has to be something that's going to make sense. It's got to be logical. And it's got to be, I don't want to say entertaining, it's a little bit overblown, but it has to be something that captures their interest, something that keeps them paying attention to the story. Mm. And there's an art to that. It takes time to develop that. I think in a sense, it's a gift from God if you have the ability to do that. And I, I assume in, in hindsight that you must have given me that uh, because it, it worked well, certainly. Um, but I mean, that's, yes. Yeah. That's a long-winded yes to your question. No, no, that's that's great. No, I loved it. So, so a absolutely, you weave a story into it, and it doesn't begin in the closing argument. It begins at the opening statement. Um, you start that story and that narrative, and you got to remember who who's your audience. Mm -hmm. uh, it's it's case of criminal case. It's twelve people coming from various backgrounds, and so what's the commonality? I mean, it's the rare person that would rather and sit and listen to a lecture than to sit and listen to a story. Mm. So being able to take this lecture and make it a story, it's, I mean, in our case, we're, we're talking about real life stuff that, you know, most of them have only seen stuff on TV and they learn how fake TV is and they learn how fake TV trials are, <laughs> which I don't know about you, but my wife hates watching movies with me that are shows where there's a trial in it because I'm like, oh, that would never happen. <laughs> 
oh, he'd be objecting to that. Oh, that can't. <laughs> no. So, you know, it's frustrating for her to watch. Just watch the story. See, it goes back to people love a story. Yeah. Um, so being able to take that and put it into a story is, um, it is a gift and it is a talent and it is something that's developed. It's not something that, I don't know that I've ever seen anybody who knew how to do it right out of the box. Um, but you get better with time. Yeah. It makes me think of preachers, you know, right. like, yeah. like young, young men who are pr- learning the art of communication and, and properly handling God's word and, and, but then also make it an engaging and trying to connect with people. Do you both think that you could, because of your experience, uh, and, you know, preach? Personally, I don't think I'm called to that. <laughs> But maybe not called, but if, if you had to, if, if, if Luke's like, hey, Dale, I'm under the weather, Seth is, is off working out somewhere, and I need to call in off the bench, if you had to, like if it was a, you know, a really deep bench, but could you, do you think you would, just because of your experience as a lawyer, and uh, be able to communicate and, and preach? I think the lawyering part of it would certainly be there. It never goes away. <laughs> the thing for me would be, concern for whether I am correctly stating the truth of God's word. Yeah. And I would never want to misinterpret it. Yeah. I would never want to lead people astray. And that's a huge responsibility. I'm not sure that I'm ready for that. <laughs> Glenn, what do you think? That's a great point. I think my, all my kids would tell, would tell you that I am a preacher. Um, I just have a very small congregation. <laughs> that um, is great. Um, but I, I would say, yes, the communication skills would translate, but um, the, the weight um, of, of, you know, giving God's word to people in a way yeah. that you're, where you're telling a story and not taking them astray, um, that's, that's a huge weight. So um, could I do it? Yes. Should I do it? Probably not. <laughs> yeah. Um, how does your faith in Christ shape your your day-to-day work, whether it be your role or just getting up in the morning and just knowing, okay, God has given me a day of work. How does your faith or your relationship with Christ, how is it shaped kind of the way that you approach your day or, or your role? It's different in retirement than it was when I was practicing law and raising kids. But I can tell you now that it is the primary overriding thing in my life from the moment I wake up in the morning. And I'm actually really happy that that's the way it is. That's been a change in the years in retirement. It was not that way when I was practicing law. Mm. Uh, There was too much stuff going on. Had to get up, had to wolf down breakfast, had to get to the office, had conference calls, had hearings, had depositions, had briefs that had to be written, letters responded to. You know, it was just sort of this overwhelming day-to-day practice, which for me was a lot of hours. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, being in private practice, you can control it to an extent, but your, uh, your caseload and your docket also controls it. So having the luxury in retirement of waking up and spending solid time in God's Word and in prayer first thing in the morning is huge. And also for Melissa and I both, so now I'm speaking for my non-lawyer wife, mm-hmm. uh, leading an RC group as, as we've done fairly recently, there is a, a, a responsibility there to adequately in that small situation uh, lead people in, in God's word and in 
just kind of pointing them in the right direction, not necessarily preaching it to them, but trying to help point in the right direction. But the overarching thing for me this summer has been the sovereignty of God and how God is sovereign in everything. He's not just sovereign in electing us to salvation. He is sovereign to every detail of your day. And once you realize that, what that helps you do is realize that, like the old hymn, I need thee, Lord, I need thee, every hour I need thee, to be in prayer constantly. So it, it's really become a huge part of me, much more than, than it ever has been, much more than I would have guessed it would be, but I love it. Yeah. Glenn? So, so it's, that's a, you know, I've been sitting here listening and, and thinking about that question, and I, I believe that, that God is more a part of my every moment than I can fathom. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I will say that, you know, having walked with the Lord as a, as a Christian since I was 18, um, and through the process of sanctification, I mean, I've, I've come to the place in my life where there isn't much that I do or think about where I'm really not sensing the Holy Spirit there and me communing with God. And, and, you know, you know, we're supposed to constantly be in prayer, and that's the way I look at it. I'm constantly in communication with God through the Holy Spirit and the Holy God to me through the Holy Spirit. And so it's in everything, and it, I really do sense it being in everything. Um, and as far as how that translates to when I walk in the door of a government agency, mm. um, it can be tricky. Um, so I would say that... Um, a, a large number of the people that I've worked with over the years know I'm a Christian, but I've never said it to them. Uh, mm. Specifically because as a supervisor, I have very strict guidelines that I must follow in a government agency. Um, and it can never seem like I'm making a decision based on my faith, despite the fact that there really isn't anything I do absent my faith, just as there isn't anything that an atheist does that isn't absent their faith in the absence of a God. So, so it's there, it's part of me, um, and it does walk through the door with me, but it is not overt in any way. Mm. Um, and uh, it's, it, it is something that um, really, until you really ask that question, I really hadn't thought of in a long time, but it's, it's always there. Yeah, yeah. Um, are there any particular challenge? I mean, talk a little bit about walking into uh, a federal building and, being a believer, but I mean, are there other, any challenges that would be unique as a believer in law, the field of law? I I can't speak for the civil practice of law. I can remember my uh, civil procedure professor saying, um, a lawyer's like a bus. You don't have to, isn't a lawyer's not like a bus. You don't have to stop for everyone. (laughs) Yeah. Um, and, uh, an, another lawyer that I know said, uh, you make your money based on the clients you don't take versus the ones you take. Um, so there's a, there's a selection process that exists mm. in private practice that doesn't exist within the, the practice of law as a government lawyer. Um, you know, we receive investigations from agencies and we review the evidence and we make a, we make a decision as to whether we're going to present it to a grand jury and present the case. Um, so yeah, it's certainly possible that there can be things that you, that you disagree with. Um, but you know, God is sovereign 
over the law and over the government, and the government is instituted by God over man, and we're subject to those laws. And that goes back to the compartmentalization. You know, mm. we have things that we have to do um, that, you know, you might not always agree with it personally. Now, I can't remember a, a time in my career ever where I've had uh, a situation that uh, I I felt like was contrary to my faith. Mm. Um, but it's certainly possible. Yeah. Dale, what about you? Any specific challenges as a believer practicing law? Well, actually quite a few. And I, I mean, I could share stories, but they tend to be a little bit on the long side. But most of them involve compromise of principle, compromise of truth for the sake of monetary gain or for the sake of the business. Mm. And those temptations are, I would say, tend to be frequent. Um, there are lawyers that are, whose reputation is basically they will do anything to win a case, lie, cheat, steal, and they tend to be identified fairly quickly and you have to be very careful when you deal with them as opposing counsel. Mm. But then there are things that sneak up on you uh, in your own situation, your own practice. Um, I'll, I'll tell you one brief story. I'll try to keep it brief. Years ago, when I was working in El Paso, I had a very complicated uh, insurance case where basically two insurance companies were pointing the finger at each other and one attorney was suing both of them and suing the individuals that they insured over. It was a, it was a death case. And I got a call from the attorney one day and he said, uh, Dale, um, you know, I, I could really use some help getting this case, case resolved. You know, it'd be really nice if we could get this case settled. He said, what would you like? Would you like um, a night with the latest Playboy centerfold? And I'm, I'm laughing, right? I'm in, and he said, or would you like a, a trip to Disney World with your, your new wife and, and the daughter that you got in, in your recent marriage? And I'm going, ha, 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 that's pretty funny. I'm not going to mention the guy's name. I said, ha, ha, that's pretty funny. Sure, sure. And he goes, he goes, no, 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 I'm serious. I'm serious. What is it you want? He said, you don't think I can do this? I can do this. What is it, what, what's it going to take? And I just pretended it was a joke the whole time. And when the phone call ended, it was very, very uncomfortable. I realized he was serious. Oh, no. And I realized that he was trying to buy me off so that I would sell out my client. Mm. So, I mean, I've got other stories like that, too. But that's one example. And they, they're not really frequent, necessarily, but they do happen. And there's kind of that gut check moment. And I was probably a baby Christian at the time th that particular phone call happened because my story of giving my life to Christ was I was a heathen through my country Western band days. I was a heathen through law school and I was a heathen in my first couple of years as an attorney. And it wasn't until about a year after my wife and I got married that we both gave our lives to Christ. So that was a real tough one for me. I'm not, not that I'm saying that I was tempted, but it was an easy call for me, but it was like, does this stuff really happen? Is this going to just continue happening? Wow. Just because of the nature of the practice I'm in and the dollars at risk. And it did. And that kind of thing did happen oh, fairly that, frequently. That's horrible. Um, let's transition maybe to a little advice. So imagine somebody kind of in their uh, maybe mid to late twenties, early thirties, or even older, but somebody who is um, thinking about their career, thinking about how to be a faithful witness uh, uh, to Christ 
also be a faithful employee? Like, what are the things that, what advice would you give? And you both have kids and grandkids. So if even all, one of your kids or grandkids would, would come to you and say, hey, you know, I want to be a great worker and I want to be faithful. Like, what advice would you give them? What should they bring to work? Uh, I, I would say humility. Mm. Uh, and and humility, um, it's, it's not just um, an appearance thing, but somebody who is humble is inquisitive. They don't think they know. And so they ask. Um, somebody who is humble doesn't assume a position um, and assume a competence, if you will. Um, they let their work do that for them rather than, uh, you know, espouse something uh, that perhaps isn't them. Maybe it is, but they don't. Um, and so I'd really tell them that humility is something that will take you a long way. It's respected by people. It's not weak. It's actually very strong. Uh, there's a difference between being humble and being weak. Mm. What about you, Dale? What advice would you give? Well, I, I totally agree with what he's saying, but look, there's a couple of other things that I think are really important. Number one is bring your integrity. And that integrity is going to be based on your relationship with the Lord because that's where you're going to get that wisdom and guidance as to what is the right thing to do. What is, what is God's will in that situation? So bring your integrity, bring your prayer life. But more than that, I would say also bring the things that you see in Jesus as he went to the cross, bravery, Mm. courage, commitment, self-sacrifice, and being a servant. Mm. So come with that servant attitude and, and come with, certainly the humility and the listening, but be prepared to be courageous, be prepared to be brave, have a backbone, be prepared to take a stand. Oh, that's great. Um, some writers, uh, authors who like to write in and speak about work, they sometimes will categorize um, uh, soft skills and hard skills. So soft skills, humility, empathy, being able to communicate hard skills, the competency of executing your work within your role and responsibility. Um, when you've mentored young men and women or colleagues, um, where, where have you typically had to provide the most guidance? Was it in the competency of their work or in the soft skills of being a team player, communicating, having empathy, humility? And in my experience, it's, it's the latter, um, Mm. because, um, the, the places I've worked, uh, they typically do a pretty good job of vetting people for their competency <laughs> in getting in the door. That's not to say that it's perfect, but it's really good. Uh, so uh, helping people to understand, you know, y- your reputation um, is very important. So being a, a person of integrity uh, and a person of your word is very important. A- and it's, it's a, uh, you know, it's, it's something that's done in little things and in big things. And it's something that when you, you hurt that, it lasts a long time and oh, it'll wow. follow you. So helping people to understand relationships within the office. I mean, one of the things I've been on the interview panel with my office since 2007. And one of the questions I always ask people 
uh, is, you know, have you ever had a conflict in your in the office? And I go through with a support staff person, with a colleague, with a supervisor, with opposing counsel. And I'm not talking about being adversarial on, a, on an issue, but a conflict, conflict, and how do they work through it? Mm. And what would that person say about the way you work through it? So the relational issues that you deal with in the workplace are very important. Mm. Uh, and those are probably things that I've spent more time mentoring people on than anything else. Yeah. Oh, that's great. That is great, Dale. That's a blessing that he was able to say that. <laughs> it's very different in private practice. It's very hard to vet people in mm. private practice. Uh, they can look wonderful on paper. They can do well in an interview and you get them into the office and something else happens. But I, I trained associates fairly early in my career. Um, I, just back up, give you a little brief overview. The last 20 years of my practice I was uh, one of the owners, or my last three years, I was the owner of the business. So as an owner of the business, one of the things that I had to inculcate in the young associates was the quality of work. Mm. And I would repeatedly talk to them about, if you aren't going to do your A-plus job, then you have no business doing anything for them, for that client. Because they deserve your absolute best. They come to you. They rely on you to be walked through this judicial system. They rely on you for, they put your, their trust in you. They believe in your competence. Don't fail them. It's so important. And whether it's an individual client or it's an institutional client, business client, it doesn't matter. You still need to have that excellence that you strive for each and every day. So that was something that I would, I would, push on people. Now, just a little background on this. When I first graduated from law school, everybody wanted to make partner. That was like the big goal. So how do you do that? By doing great work, by putting in long hours, by showing your dedication, your willingness to listen and learn. Something changed after about being in practice 10, 12 years. And what we started seeing was people coming out of law school that were saying, you know, I just want to work nine to five and make a good amount of money. I don't really want to be an owner. I don't want to make partner. I don't want to go out and bring work in. I want you to give me the work. So there was this transition in the culture from these motivated people coming out of law school when I graduated to, you know, 15 years later, you're looking at people that really aren't that motivated. They just want to come in and do whatever it is you tell them to do the bare minimum required to get by and make a nice living. Mm. So that was a real challenge for us to deal with uh, as a law firm. And ultimately I'm not sure that's changed now. And I don't know because I've been out of the profession for five plus years, but that was the biggest challenge for me in training people. Interesting contrast is that people who come to do the kind of work that we do don't come to it for the money. Um, there's a different kind of capital that you get doing the kind of work we do. And it's the kind of thing, it's the layer head down on the pillow at night saying, you know, my job is to do the right thing. And I did that today. Mm. And, and it's something that fills a different account. And so we get people, I mean, I'm amazed at times when we're hiring people away from major, major, major firms in major cities across this country. And, you know, they went to the best schools and they clerked for judges at high levels and they have a pedigree. And then they got the, 
that got that job at that firm that, you know, most of these driven attorneys want and they did it and they were there and they're like, there's something more. Mm. And they literally come to us and it's not uncommon for us to pay them one third what they were making as a young lawyer. One third. One third. Not uncommon at all. And, and it's because they want to do the work. Mm. So we're in a little different situation. It's a, it's usually, usually the people, especially coming to our office, it's a little bit different at a, at a DA's office or a county attorney's office, a little bit different. Um, but coming to work for the Department of Justice in the United States Attorney's Office, um, I mean, it is, we get a very high caliber of, I, I don't even know that I could get hired there now. I mean, <laughs> it's just gone better and better and better. So uh, it's, it's different. It is, it is markedly different in, in the environment that I've worked in. So purpose over paycheck. It is very much so. I, I totally agree with what he's saying and, and tying that into my personal life. When I'd spent about five years in the firm that I started with, which is a fairly large law firm by the standards of West Texas, I did want to get a job with the U.S. Attorney's Office and I applied and I got on the short list and then Bill Clinton put in effect a hiring freeze and I was all ready to start working for the U.S. Attorney's Office in the District of New Mexico and I couldn't. So that, that was, there was a change, of course, there, but I did leave the firm in El Paso and moved back to New Mexico, and I took a 40% cut in pay <laughs> because I was able to work with a different firm, a smaller firm, whose, I'm just going to say, whose standards better fit mine. Yeah. Have you worked through your bitterness with uh, President Clinton? <laughs> I'm sure I have. I, I, I'm sure I got over that pretty quickly. <laughs> Um, all right, time for some fun, uh, rapid-fire questions. If you had a magic wand, what would you fix about your work, about your role, or about the, the you know being a lawyer? What's the one thing, bling, magic wand, fix it, it's, it's gone? Well, well and when you say magic wand, I, I'm, not, I'm not hearing any limitations. I would put myself out of a job. Uh, uh, you know, if, if, uh, if I could, if I could use a magic wand and, uh, you know, change the heart of man, yeah, uh, wouldn't that be wonderful? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm assuming that's off the table. Yeah. Like, okay. the, yeah, your, your day to day. Yeah. Well, well, we know there is one coming that will, will f- rectify all things and we are excited for his return. Right. And we don't call that magic. No, it's um, not. But, 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 um, uh, you know, I, I, I'd have to say that, um, uh, it would be, um, really going back to the soft skills you talked about and having people recognize how important those are mm. and to not have to teach them that. I mean, it's the kind of thing that you would hope people learned in kindergarten, right? Yeah. I, I like to, I can't tell you how many times I've, I've, I've talked to a manager who's dealing with an issue with employees. And I'd said, I'd say, you know what? That they never grow out of the sandbox. They just don't. It's the same issues. It's just it's more money. It's bigger consequences. Higher stakes. Yeah. Yeah. And and so I I would say it would be you know, just having people learn to respect others and get along. Wow. You know I can't say a whole lot different. I would I would ditto the first part. That is if. I could wave a magic wand and make all judges fair, impartial, and unbiased. I would do that. 
because I think that would be huge. That would further the interest of justice, God's justice. But I don't think I managed as much as uh, Glenn did it, or as much as he does. I was managing partner of, of the firm I was in for quite a while. Mm. And that was the most unpleasant part of my work was managing people. So we had an office administrator who we hired to do that job so that we didn't have to. Uh, but that was definitely the toughest job was managing people. If I could take away that day-to-day bickering, that mm. backstabbing, all that stuff, that'd be wonderful. So you're both a little bit in different stages of your career, but um, in, enjoy this question. If God blessed you with $10 million and you didn't have to worry about taking a full-time paycheck, what would you do? Would you do the same kind of work or would you do something different? And if you were to do something different, what would that be? I would do what I'm doing right now. <laughs> being retired? <laughs> well, being retired, but there's a lot more to it. I mean, let, let me just give you a moment here and I'll try to make this really brief. When I retired, Melissa's and my plan was, let's travel the world. Let's go to Italy. Let's go to Greece. Let's go to France. Let's go to Scotland. Let's go to all these places that we've always wanted to go. Well, in a pretty short period of time, it was obvious that that, uh, God had a different plan. Mm. And my heart was being poured into music and and, sort of back to my country western days. I wasn't doing country music, (laughs) but I was writing songs for my Lord and God, mm. and got involved in doing outreach, not playing to the congregation, but going to homeless shelters, going to hospitals, uh, going to community centers, and using the music as a way to reach out to people that are outside of the church. And that my heart got very strong in that, and God brought a group of people around that uh, had kindred spirits, kindred hearts, and that's what we did. And now, since we moved here, it's be it's become more continuing writing, but also recording, producing, and releasing songs. Oh, that, that's great! That, that honor my Lord. Mm. So I wouldn't change a thing about that. I love that. Yeah. Next question: Do you watch the law TV shows? No. No. <laughs> Too frustrating. Too frustrating. Too unrealistic. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, they have thirty minutes to to do so much that they 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 have to break the rules. So. Yeah. I don't like lawyers or rule followers for the most part. Yeah. Uh, so it's very frustrating. <laughs> the show LA law was really popular when I was in law school and shortly after. So for those of you in my vintage, remember that all my friends would say, does that stuff really happen? And I would say, well, yes, it does. But rather than taking an hour, it usually takes about a year. Yeah. <laughs> So I, I know probably one of the most quotable uh, kind of uh, movie line from a theme or from a, from a movie would be kind of, you can't handle the truth, a few good men. Um, what did you guys both think of kind of that movie that, you know, kind of the third act is pretty much in the, in the courtroom. I have a vague recollection of the movie because like <laughs> I said, I, I don't pay a lot of attention and I've never practiced in a military court, which are a little bit different. Mm. Um, but so I do remember the outburst of Jack Nicholson yeah. uh, to Tom Cruise that he couldn't handle the truth. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, like Glenn, I have a vague memory of it. And most of those things, unless they were, for example, Henry Fonda and Gideon's trumpet, you know, which is a fairly realistic law story. Yeah. Um, I just don't have much memory of those. Or kill, kill a mockingbird. Gregory. I think that's Atticus Gregory Peck, Finch. Right? Atticus Finch. No. Yeah. Okay, I'll move on. Um, would you rather be more analytical 
or more creative? I would want an equal balance of both. No, that's not, not a, an that's, option. I'm, I'm sorry. Well, I, then, I object. Okay. Sustained. <laughs> in, these, in this day and age, I would say creative. More creative. Okay. More creative. Is that because you're creative and you just want to be more creative or because you're analytical and you'd like to have just a more of a balance? It's the latter. It's, yeah. uh, you know, I, I spent 30 years being more analytical than creative. And now I think I'd like to flip it the other way around. Yeah. So are, are, is this another like magic wand? If I could change myself question or. Yeah. I mean, okay. if, yeah. If, hey, if, uh, Lord, um, make me more analytical or Lord, make me more creative. Like what is your prayer? Well, let me go back and say that I, I would say that my bent is more creative than it is analytical. I struggle to be detail oriented. Mm. I am an idea person. Um, I come up with lofty ideas. I never execute them because I'm not necessarily, that's not, <laughs> I give them to somebody else. And if they ran with them, they'd be great. So I'm more of a creative person. So I've had to learn to be analytical and I've done that for 30 years. And, and I believe I've done a decent job of it. Um, but I, I would really rather be more creative. Um, mm. I actually just uh, picked up uh, the guitar during the pandemic and have been taking oh. lessons. So I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get that so that I, I have something to keep my brain and my, my ever more arthritic fingers busy uh, as, I, as I grow older. Um, so creative. Great, great. Well, thank you both for your time, um, and thank you both for your your faithfulness to our church and to our obviously our community, our the states that you both have have served, and just the the service of of law to people who need it. Um, so, and just uh, it's been just a great time of of conversation. For those of you listening, uh, we hope this has been encouraging. We love you so much, and um, in Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. 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 Thank you both. Thanks to listening for two lawyers for an hour. <laughs>